I want you to picture two groups. Two groups with sort of a outdoorsy experience. One group is maybe a group of, of Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts, and they're going camping. So they're out in the woods. They're, they're doing camping sort of things, right? They want to build fires. They want to pitch tents. They want to do some hiking, some, some navigating through the trails. And it doesn't really matter where they go because the important thing is the experience. They want to have a good experience out in the woods. They want to learn outdoorsy sort of things. So as they're walking along, one might say, hey, we should turn this way. And another one might say, hey, we should turn this way. And you know, really, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, they can go one way or the other. They're still going to have a decent experience. One path, sure, might be a little rougher than another, but it's really all about the experience. Now, imagine another group. It's a group that's on a mission, maybe a group of soldiers, and they're going somewhere. They they have to get from where they are to a city because there's trouble in their, that city. There's There are people there that need to be rescued. There are enemies there that need to be defeated. Do you think they have the same conversations along the way? Hey, I think we should go this way. No, I think I like this one better. Now, maybe they do. Maybe they would say, well, I think this will help us to get to the city better. But see, there's the key difference. They bring into where they are going in every conversation along the way the notion of mission. There's a reason for them going where they're going. Now, if you're here today and you're a Christian... Scripture says you're a part of something called the church. Maybe this is your church home, maybe it's not. But we're all part of something, this big thing called the church, the gathered of believers around the world throughout history. The church. What is it that we are a part of? Which group are we like? Are we like the first group and we're just looking for an experience along the way? We're here to have a good experience. It doesn't really matter what we do. It doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter how we do it. As long as we have a good experience. That's becoming very popular today. Churches are redefining what they're doing, how they're doing it, what they say, how they say it, in order to have a good, pleasurable experience and to win people over. My question is, what would Paul say to that? As we've walked our way through the book of Ephesians so far, I hope you understand that the church is defined as being on a mission. We are not simply here for an experience. And by here, I don't mean just here on Sunday mornings. I mean here existing as Christians in this world, in our lives, every day that we wake up to worship God. It's not about us. We have a mission. And that mission brings us together. We've already seen this in the book of Ephesians. Paul started out by talking about the greatness of Christ in chapter 1, and then he prayed that they would understand that. In chapter 2, he gets into their personal salvation. They've been brought from death to life, saved by God's grace. And then he goes into how that should exhibit itself in the church, this church that had struggles between these two vastly different people groups, Jews and Gentiles, that the world would have said that it should have nothing to do with each other. And Paul says, no, in the gospel, if you truly are brought to something new, then that gospel has to heal. It has to bring unity there. There has to be a display of that unity in the gospel. Paul went on in chapter 3 to talk about his own ministry. He said, I've been called to this. And then he prayed at the end of chapter 3, applying this to them. I want you to know God's love at work in you. And so we come to chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16 today. This is a very long passage for me. Uh, I like taking three or four verses, four or five verses maybe, so we can really chew on it. But this all goes together. So we're going to fly very quickly through it. 
and really hit the high points. But there's a lot here about walking together. In fact, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the NIV has, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The Greek, and, and maybe some of your translations bring this out, they use the word, I want you to walk worthy. I like that, I, that way of thinking. It, it means live. I mean, NIV is not wrong. It does mean live. But, but the idea to me of walking, it, it's sort of like, where are you putting this next step? Just, just that one. Not the hundred ahead of it, just that one. Are you going to put that foot, that step, in a place that is in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's your walk. And then the next one, you're going to do the same thing. I'm going to walk where Christ is leading me. I'm going to follow him and trust me, trust him, and I'm going to keep doing that. And Paul emphasizes, and all of Scripture emphasizes, when we come to faith in Christ, we are not walking with Christ alone, which frankly, in some ways, would be easier. But we walk with Christ together. And that walking together demonstrates the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world. So we're going to look at three sections in this passage. I want to first look at this idea of walking in unity. What does it mean to walk together? And as we walk through this passage, uh, one of the things that's important to realize is this is a big shift in the book of Ephesians. In fact, the first sentence, I would say, in chapter 4 is sort of a, a thesis or a subject statement for the rest of the book. How are you going to live for Jesus Christ? And he's going to go into very practical things. How are you going to relate to your spouse, children? How are you going to relate to your parents? Parents, how will you relate to your your children? He'll talk about how are you going to live a holy life just in your own personal holiness. He's going to talk later in the book at how are you going to stand against the forces of this world and the changing, shifting ways of our culture? How are you going to stand firm? Very, very practical things. But before he gets there, it's really interesting to look at what he puts first. Because I believe Paul is saying, if we're going to walk worthy, we need to understand this first if we're going to understand all the rest of that. So let's look at what he talks about. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I, this is Paul writing, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is saying we have been called to something. When we receive Christ, it's okay to talk about how you accepted Christ when you prayed to receive Christ. But as you grow as a Christian, Scripture makes it very clear. It was God who took the initiative. It was God who sought us. It was God who found us. It was God who saves us. It is God who leads us. It is God who will come to claim us to be his own. All the emphasis is on the work of God. I think that's important because as a church coming together, if we think this is about us, then it should all be about our experience. What do we want? But if this was God's calling, then the question is not what do we want, but what does he want? That's where we need to look. And that's what I see Paul talking about. Now, I think it's important also to say, when he says live a life worthy, this is not Paul writing to the Ephesians saying, okay, you've been saved. 
Now, you better shape up or you're not going to deserve it. If you don't clean up your life, well, then you're not going to be a good Christian. That's not what he's saying. Paul has emphasized throughout all of his writings that our salvation and the continuance of our salvation is all about God's grace. It's God's work. So when he says, make every effort to live a life worthy of the calling, what he's saying, and he says this in many different places in his writings, live out what God is doing in you. The emphasis is on the work of God. You want to live worthy of the gospel, understand you can't measure up. So trust in what God is doing in you. Trust in what Christ has done on the cross. Trust in the maturity that God is working out, as we'll look at in the rest of the passage. Look at the first command. The first command in the Greek text here actually falls in verse 3. We'll come back to verse 2 in a second. But the imperative, right? There's a little grammar lesson for you. The imperative takes place in verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So Paul's saying, okay, if we're going to live worthy of the gospel, if we're going to live in such a way that demonstrates the reality of the gospel, what's the first thing we need to understand? The first thing we need to focus on? Unity. See, I wouldn't have gone there. I would have gone to all sorts of other things. Let's talk about your private life, how you spend your money, how you spend your time. Let's let's talk about the things that he's going to go to in the remaining chapters. But unity, eh, I mean, yeah, I hope we have unity. I hope it happens along the way. But really, is it that big a deal? Paul says, absolutely. In fact, he says, not only is it a big deal, he says, make every effort. Have you ever had a, a teacher come to you or a parent or maybe a boss or co-worker? They come to you and say, hey, just do your best. That's not quite what Paul's saying here. This is not just an assignment of, hey, just try hard. Okay, that's, that's sort of, yeah, make an effort. The sense in the Greek is urgent and important. This would be more like me coming to you and saying, the building is on fire. Make every effort to get to the exit. That's the sense of the Greek here. It is an emergency. It is urgent and it is extremely important. That's how Paul feels about unity. Because that's the display of the gospel. Unity has to be fought for. It has to be worked for. It has to have effort. It's not just some byproduct of Christian living that happens along the way. It takes effort. But how? How are we going to have unity? And that's where we go back to verse 2. Because again, the Greek, the, the NIV kind of changes this into an imperative. Be completely humble and gentle. But the Greek is more of being how are you going to be? Uh, uh, how are you going to seek unity? Well, you're going to seek it through humility, through gentleness, through patience, through bearing with one another in love. But isn't it interesting what he says there? The key to unity is humility. Humility. Think about this for a second. The gospel is this truth that the Son of God died in our place because we are wicked, wretched sinners lost in our rebellion against God, destined for death and hell. It's the beginning part of the gospel. That we are saved only through Christ's work and his grace for us. That we are risen a new life in him and destined for eternal life with him forever. That's the gospel. What do I have to take pride in that? What, what trophy am I going to put up on my shelf saying, look at what I earned, what I accomplished? 
Because the truth of the gospel says, what I earn, what I accomplish, is my own death. Woohoo! look at me, aren't I awesome? What pride can I take in that? And, and if there is any good in me, Scripture says, God gets the credit for that because it's His work. If I have any hope of salvation, which I do in Christ, it's because God did the work in Christ. That's not my trophy, it's God's trophy. He gets all the glory. What do I have to take pride in? Now, that doesn't mean I walk around going, I'm such an awful person. It means I walk around going, I have a great God. I have a great God. People have asked me along the way, what were we looking for in an associate pastor? My first answer is always humility. Always. People say, what do you look for in a teacher, and a leader? Humility. I truly believe throughout the course of my ministry, and I think, was it 15 years next year? 19 years? <laughs> One thing I've not learned is how to count. <laughs> What's that? I, I can't count those either, so that's good. Over the course of my ministry, one of the things God has impressed upon me again and again, and, and sometimes it's through the failings of others, sometimes it's through my own failings, is the absolute importance of humility. And that, quite frankly, a Christian without humility is a Christian that fails to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You cannot truly understand the gospel and hold on to pride in your own life. Because the gospel is the most humbling truth there ever was. As Christians, it, it bothers me sometimes that we've been caught up in this cultural notion of holding up people that are proud and arrogant and boisterous, and we call it boldness. It's not boldness. It's arrogance. It's pride. And and we applaud people outside the church. That's bad enough. But then we start applauding Christian leaders and teachers, and we say, oh, they're so great. They're so bold. They're not bold. They're proud and arrogant. Because it's not based on the Word of God. And it seems like week after week goes by where we hear a story of a pastor having to step down. It it used to be because of sexual sins, and that's horrible enough, but now it's so-and-so had to step down because of pride, arrogance. It should not be in the church. It should not be in your heart. It cannot be in mine. We must have humility. Humility is more than just an attitude. It's the appropriate application of the Word of God. It's an appropriate outflowing of understanding the Word of God. Look at what he says in verse 4. So he says, Be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity. And then look at where he goes in verse 4. Because there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. He goes into a litany, a list of things that are the basic fundamental aspects of our Christian belief. There's one God. Only one way of salvation. There's only one thing called the church. We are baptized into this. I want you to look at this through two lenses. One is, is the humility lens, okay? So we can read this and say, there's one body, and guess what? We didn't make it. There's one spirit, and that's not us. We were called to one hope. We didn't call ourselves, somebody else did. There's one Lord, not me. It's not you. There's one faith. I didn't make up Christianity. You didn't make up Christianity. There's one faith that we believe in. There's one baptism. 
Baptism is the declaration, I'm dead in my sin and only alive through Jesus Christ. I didn't make that up. I can't claim anything of myself in that. That is all of Christ. There's one God and Father of all who was over all and through all and in all. And that's not you. And it's not me. So if we're looking for humility and we're looking for unity, we're not going to find it in our own selves and our own preference. Paul says, you've got to look at who God is. You've got to look at what God has done. I think a lot of churches in the United States and around the world are really struggling today because we want unity, but we want it on our terms. We want it through our lenses, through what makes us happy and our preferences. And guess what? It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. Before I leave this point, I just want to make one more point. Look at, for Paul, how theology drives behavior. Theology drives behavior. It's his understanding of who God is that drives the unity and that drives the humility. It's so commonplace for Christians today to say, oh, theology is not important. Knowledge of God, it doesn't matter. Understanding who God is, reading his word, it doesn't matter. I just feel it. That's not good enough. That puts us in the driver's seat, not God. Our behavior comes from understanding who God is. And we've got to grow in that. Then he goes on. He says, not only do we have to have unity, but we need to serve in diversity. Look at verses 7 through 13. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why, he says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul says we are saved by grace. But then he goes on to say we serve in grace. Any good thing that we can do for God is the byproduct of his grace at work within us. So we don't get to take credit for that. We don't earn any righteousness because of it. What do we need more righteousness for? We already have the righteousness of Christ. We're given grace, and now, as Paul talked about in chapter 3, he's become a steward of that grace, and now God has gifted in the church us with his grace to serve him. We need to move quick here, so I'm going to move through this very, very quick. Paul uses a quote here, and the gist of it, without going into all the details, is tying into a notion that when a leader in that time period would conquer a city, he would distribute gifts to his soldiers. And so he's tying into this and saying, Christ, who descended from heaven, the incarnation, ascended back, he could be referring to the resurrection or Christ's ultimate ascension, or maybe both, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. But when he did this, he gave us gifts. Okay? So that gets us down to verse 11. Throughout Scripture, there are many different listings of gifts. Spiritual gifts. This is God's spiritual enablement on his people to do things for him. There's different things like giving, faith, healing, uh, leadership, administration. There's speaking in tongues. There's prophecy. There's all sorts of different ones. Some of them are very individual. Some are very corporate. Some are public. Some are private. Vast kind of spectrum of spiritual gifts. What's interesting here is that this is not a vast spectrum of spiritual gifts. Paul is very intentional in the list that he chooses. He says, 
Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Do you know what all of those gifts have in common? They are all about the public proclamation of the word of God. Look at the list. Apostles and prophets. If you flip back to chapter 2, verse 20, Paul's already said to the Gentiles, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Here's verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The role of the apostle was to say, I saw Christ. I saw him die. I saw him raised from the dead. I am a witness. That witness was then written down. We have it in the four Gospels. It's the witness, through the word of God, of the risen Lord. Prophets then, as the church was growing and developing, God would communicate with his church through people. So the prophets communicated to the people. Evangelists brought the gospel, the spoken message that Jesus Christ died in your place. Pastors and teachers would would teach just like we still do today. Take God's word that is already there. We don't make this stuff up. I don't get to sit in my study and say, hey, what do I think God wants to say to the people today? I open his word and says, oh, he already said it. How do I help them to understand it? And so we teach. But it's all about the word of God. So Paul is saying when it comes to the church, if we are going to be unified, but also value the different giftedness that we have, it all has to be based on the Word of God. It has to be. We don't get to make this stuff up for ourselves. And he talks about the goal of this unity, reaching unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and becoming mature. And he's going to pick that up in verse 14. Let's read 14 through 16. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For, or from him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament, Uh, From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul gives two pictures of immaturity. He really ties them together. The first is one of an infant. We just got a puppy. Some of you may have seen this. We got a little, what is it called, a cockapoo? Sadie, we named her. So she's about the size of a loaf of bread, tiny loaf of bread. And uh, she's seven weeks old. She's completely nuts and and totally awesome at the same time. Uh, You know, my wife and I often talk about how much it is like having a newborn again because you're up like all night long. You're constantly watching them. But I've noticed there's one very big difference. You see a newborn, while they have no clue and they can't learn about, you know, really anything yet, you can't teach them yes and no, right and wrong. That's, That's all for later. A newborn doesn't move, Right? You get the baby, you put them in the bassinet or something, they're not going to crawl out of it and and do something naughty. Puppy has no such problem. (laughs) Puppy goes wherever puppy wants and gets into whatever she wants to do. So she has all the immaturity of a newborn, but she has all the activity and mobility of like a two-year-old. It's a bad combination. And I read a book, or actually I went online and, and looked up how to train a puppy. 
Okay, that's what I do when I'm clueless on something. I Google it and I figure it must be true because it's online. So I looked it up online and it says, it said, puppies are not like children. Puppies are, are pack animals and they need boundaries and it's not just about keeping them happy. You have to set boundaries in their life and, and train them according to that. And I thought, man, this person must not have kids. Maybe they've got the puppy thing down, but they don't know kids at all. That's exactly like children. In our immaturity, we run after things all the time that we think we want, and we need a boundary to lovingly say, no, it's going to hurt you. Don't go there. I don't let my kids do everything they want. That would be horrible for them. Frankly, it would be horrible for me, and probably horrible for a lot of you as well as they run around the church, which, granted, sometimes they do anyway, but we try. So there's this idea of an infant that's immature, and then there's this other idea of a boat tossed back and forth on the ocean. Presumably a boat that's lost its rudder, because it's it's a boat at the will of the winds and the waves. Lost, just tossed. Cannot set its own direction, cannot set its own course. Wherever the wind blows, wherever the waves crash, that's where that boat's going to go. And then Paul says, take those two pictures of immaturity and lostness, Put them together, take an infant, throw it on the ocean, and watch what happens. That's the picture he's giving of being immature. Think of how serious that is. I mean, that should, that should hurt, like deep down in the soul of our being. Oh, man, yeah, that's bad. That's really, really bad. Children need to grow. They need to mature. On Friday... Our president wrote a letter to the schools of our country. As a pastor, I tend to stay out of politics. I don't talk about it much from the the pulpit. But this was a tipping point for me. This letter is so horrendous and so awful that as Christians, we have got to evaluate, at the very least, what we think about it and how to respond to it. The letter that went out went to schools, and it said that children have the right to determine not just their own sexual identity, but their own gender. They have the right to say, for a boy to say, I'm a girl, and for a girl to say, I'm a boy. All right, that's bad enough. Because it totally disregards any concept of, of any overarching authority of anything other than the child. The child has the right and the responsibility to determine its own sex. Then the school has to jump and say, okay, Boy says it's a girl. Now I've got to I've got to treat the boy as a girl. This is what I have to do, and everything in the school has to be revolved around what that child wants. The letter said, and I read it, said that the schools can be and, and people in the school can be accused of bullying if they use the wrong pronoun for the child. It also says schools have to are legally bound to because it's a law or it's a letter from our president because they could lose their funding if they don't do this. They are legally bound to be careful when they communicate with the parents. Because if the child wants to be a girl at school and a boy at home, the school has no right to betray that confidence. So when they talk to the parents, they have to use gender-neutral pronouns. Think of what that letter from our president, think of where all the authority is. We have just put all the authority in a child. I love children. I love them way too much to trust them with that authority. They're immature. They need to grow. They need help growing. And we're going to throw them on the ocean and say, good luck with that. 
And not only are we going to step back, but we're going to surround you and help you to thrash around in the winds and the waves. And as Christians, we have to say, what are we going to do? It's very popular. A lot of churches are applauding themselves and saying, well, we're just going to accept that. We're going to say it's okay. And the waves crash over and push the church along. They're saying we're going to change our doctrine. We're going to go back to what God's Word says and just cross things out. He didn't really mean this about sex. He didn't really mean this about gender. And the wind blows and pushes us around. And Christians are applauding it. Why? Because of this passage right here. Because they are immature, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. We have failed to mature. We're still babies. And the world says, here's some candy, take it. And we say, oh yes, please, can I have some more? We're not helping anybody. We're hurting them. We've got to grow We've got to grow in maturity. And Paul says in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Now this is not coming to somebody and saying, your dress is ugly, but I'm saying that in love. I just have to say the truth. That's not what he's talking about. He's not just saying, speak whatever is truth, but doing it in love. All right, There's other places we could go to to talk about the importance of speaking truthfully. I don't think that's what he's talking about. When he says, speak the truth, he's talking about the gospel. He's saying we have got to hold on to the very gospel, the very word of God. And we must do it in a loving way, but we've got to hold on to it. You don't reach the community and reach the culture by jettisoning the very thing that is their salvation. You don't get rid of it in order to win them and then have nothing left to help them with. He says you've got to speak the truth in love. And as we do that, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Look, I don't know the spiritual state of our president. Not my job to hazard a guess. I don't know if he's out to get the church or out to get Christians. But I will tell you this. As the days and weeks and months and years go by, the culture will turn against us. I say that as a student of culture, but I also say that as a student of God's Word. I don't need CNN to tell me this. It's here. But I will also tell you this. We're going to be okay. The road will be rough. There will be persecution. And some of you sitting here, as that comes, and as people say they're going to challenge your fundamentally held Christian beliefs, some of you will give in. But I pray and I hope that all of you will grow deeper in your relationship with Christ, deepen your understanding of God's Word, because when those winds and waves come, this is what is going to hold you strong. And nothing else. This is also what's going to cause the culture to not like us. And I get that. It's not our job to change culture. It's our job to hold on to and proclaim gospel. If God chooses to use that to change the the culture, praise God. If he chooses to use that to bring persecution to us, praise God. That's not our job. That's his job. 
two groups when hiking. One looked for an experience. One was on a mission. Which one are we? I believe we have a mission to display the gospel in our own individual lives and together as a church. We don't get to rewrite scripture to say how that works. We come to the one that called us and we say, God, teach us, show us. We're running long today, so instead of going to our last song, I'm going to ask if you would just stand together. Let me pray over us and I will dismiss you. Heavenly Father, changing wind, changing waves have never surprised you. And the things that we face today are really not all that new. Maybe they're new expressions. But sin is sin, and it always has been. And you are God, and you always have been. And Father, as as we walk together in this world, as we follow Christ and trust in the amazing grace that saves us, may we hold on to the truths that you teach us. May we seek the unity in humility that is a display of your gospel. May we value the, the diversity from your word of the way you've gifted us differently. Not the world's form of diversity, your diversity. Because it's all about your mission. And as we live in that mission, may we grow and mature. God, If whether we've been in Christ for 10 minutes or 100 years, may we continue to grow. May we continue to mature. So that the world will see you, not us, but you and the truth that you sent your son to die for us. To pay the price that was greater than what we could pay. To give us a gift that is greater than what we deserve. Salvation, eternal life, righteousness. Father, as we leave this place, may we walk worthy. And may we do so together. In your name we pray. Amen.